Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hey there, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Hold That Thought. I'm Rebecca King, and today we're going back to the earliest days of the United States to trace the origins of and the American mythology surrounding one of our favorite holidays, Thanksgiving. The holiday itself is not actually all that old, and its meaning in the American psyche has changed over the decades. My guest today is Dr. Mark Valeri, an American religious historian at the John C. Danforth Center for Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. If we're going to start at the beginning, we must start, of course, with the Pilgrims of Plymouth Colony, not to be confused with the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay. The Pilgrims were the group of settlers, and they didn't call themselves pilgrims. They were later called that in the early 19th century when some manuscripts were discovered where in one place they called themselves the Pilgrim Fathers, and it comes from this notion of Christian life as a pilgrimage. So they're, they're seriously on a pilgrimage. Those people left England early in 1607 and they were separatists, meaning they wanted to separate out from the Church of England completely. They were strong Protestants. They had a Calvinist, very serious Bible alone as the authority mentality. Communities that would separate out from the Church of England with its high ceremonies and deference to tradition, tradition that the Bible did not legitimate. Though the Puritans and Pilgrims had equally Calvinist beliefs, the Puritans wanted to reform the Church of England, while the Pilgrims wanted to separate from it entirely. This separatist ideology was problematic in England, where it was illegal not to attend official Church of England services. Remember that at this time, the Church and State of England were heavily intertwined, and the reigning monarch was also the supreme head of the Church of England, thanks to King Henry VIII, who officially split from the Catholic Church in 1534 in order to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and marry Anne Boleyn. Citizens who did not attend services were fined, and performing unofficial services held steeper penalties. In 1593, two pilgrim leaders were executed for sedition. So, in 1607, fearing further persecution, the pilgrims left England. But they didn't go to America. They actually settled in Leiden and traveled around eventually to Amsterdam, where there was a high amount of religious freedom. So they were able to develop congregations that were called Brownist congregations, because a guy named Brown was one of their leaders, pastors. So they had these little congregations in the Netherlands, but they really were never at home in the Netherlands. They were English, and uh, the Netherlands is a little too rambunctious, wild, commercially oriented for their taste. They were otherworldly oriented in a sense, forming pure communities according to the Word of God. So around 1620, they decided that they wanted to return to England 
but they feared further persecution in England, so they connected with a trading company. They went back to England very briefly and then formed this trading venture and sailed. Missed their navigational charts and took a lot longer than they thought. It ended up on Cape Cod, what's now the town of Provincetown, and, and started what's called Plymouth Colony. Though their religious beliefs were a hindrance in English society, historian Mark Valeri says that their fervent faith is also what helped them through the long and arduous journey across the Atlantic. And the first groups who came over were very, very zealous, very religiously minded. It would have been a very hard task to make this journey. I mean, coming over on these little, if you saw one of these ships today, the, the early 17th century ships look so small, and you realize crossing the Atlantic Ocean to these things often meant five or six weeks of uninterrupted seasickness. And that's what they all wrote about was, oh my goodness, this is really, really horrible. So you had to be pretty devoted to do it. You weren't coming over just to make a killing and trade at this point. When things develop after 1630, you might have had people come over for mercantile reasons, for reasons of land. But the first groups were here to establish proper modes of life and community. If you're a pilgrim, to provide an alternative to England, and if you're a Puritan, to provide an example for England. As bad as crossing the ocean was, things got no easier once land was spotted in November of 1620. Of the 102 pilgrims that left England on the Mayflower, 45 died that first winter from various illnesses and lack of proper shelter. By the next autumn, when the first Thanksgiving took place, the death count had climbed to 51. And as Dr. Valeri is about to explain, the fact that any pilgrim survived at all is due to the friendly Native American tribes in the area. The first two years, running out of food, not having good shelter, and they finally begin nearby tribes, the Wampanoag, teach them about planting corn and squanto, is their kind of diplomatic go-between between the tribe and the people. And in the second fall, 1621, they do have this big feast. I tell my family whenever we do Thanksgiving dinner where they ate local foods, which were pumpkin, cranberries, turkey, and corn. So that's why our Thanksgiving meals often center on those things, because those are all native to American soil. At that first Thanksgiving, the 50 surviving pilgrims invited 90 Native Americans as guests. The food was prepared by the four pilgrim women who survived that first winter, along with their children and servants. Historians say that the feast was probably held at the end of September, around Michaelmas, the Feast of the Archangels. Plymouth Colony continued to survive from this point on, thanks again to the Wampanoag tribe, and more pilgrims continued to cross the Atlantic, growing the colony's numbers, but slowly. Even nine years later after the first Thanksgiving in 1630, the colony had fewer than 300 inhabitants. Eventually, in 1691, Plymouth was absorbed into the much larger Massachusetts Bay Colony to the south in the Boston area. 
This narrative of the first Thanksgiving probably doesn't fit the vision that many of us have imagined over the years. I return to American religious historian Mark Valeri, who says that the mythology of the first Thanksgiving has evolved a lot over the decades, according to who is telling the story and their reasons for doing so. So the rosy picture that is freedom-loving, tolerant pilgrims seeking asylum and forming friendly relationships with native tribes first of all appears in the 1890s when there's a movement across New England to say two things. One is New England is the font, the spring of American democracy. So post-Civil War, it's not going to be Virginia, right? Because Virginia has just proven itself in the Civil War to be disloyal to American values. Virginia has this deep conflicted history from an American standpoint. So in the 1890s, the New England historic and genealogical societies began to comb through their own history and talk about this is the real source of America. Even the word pilgrims, pilgrim fathers, the celebrations, making Thanksgiving into a big holiday, the paintings that all come to our mind all come from that post-Civil War period of New England asserting its cultural, intellectual superiority. It downplayed the religion part. It's Calvinism as a good democratic movement as long as you don't pay attention to its theology. Decades later, in the 1940s and 50s, this rosy picture received a slight revision by historians and scholars during the country's Cold War identity crisis. In the 1940s and 50s, in the Cold War period, where American intellectual figures, including the English department at Harvard, a historian named Perry Miller, is looking for an America which has deep intellectual roots, which is sophisticated, and which stands as an alternative to the second world, tyrannical post-war fascism, communism. So Perry Miller and other literary scholars from that period, they do the 1890s New England Puritans and Pilgrims are important, but they do something a little different than the 1890s. They make the theology really important too. America is not this superficial, pragmatic, merely materialistically driven culture because that's on the other side of the Iron Curtain. So it's a NATO mentality that produces a lot of historical interest in the Puritans, Pilgrims as origins. So Thanksgiving is this iconic event in which there's some self-critique but it, it's, it's an attempt to find in American history a root of cultural seriousness. This idealized version of American history undergoes further critique during the tumultuous 1960s and 70s in reaction to the Vietnam War, as Americans continue to question their identity and place in the world. 1960s and 70s, in the wake of the Vietnam War and the apparent contradictions of the Cold War, the spreading of American military empire overseas, so a lot of self-critique. Then there enters into the professional historical literature 
high amount of critique of English settlers' relationship with Native Americans, with betrayed trust, with cultural imperialism, with land imperialism. So you almost have kind of the Norman Rockwell idealistic vision counterposed against a Students for Democratic Society highly critical vision. So I asked Dr. Valeri where that leaves us today. Where does Thanksgiving sit in the American psyche? What aspects of the story are still integral to our national identity? This image of Thanksgiving as embedded in the American life is a general sense that there is a divine or religious purpose to the American experiment. The squanto and the, the provision that the local tribes provided was a divine rescue at the last moment for a colony which was on the verge of passing out of existence. That doesn't mean I necessarily affirm that view of America being specially guided and protected by providence, but that's what I think it signifies. Mm -hmm. To this day, the President of the United States and certainly governors of states every year announce the day of Thanksgiving as an occasion for Americans to give thanks. Giving thanks is an unavoidably religious action, but it is no longer attached to a specific church or theology. It is to a notion of a god over history. So the one of the reasons I think Thanksgiving sticks and is still compelling is it speaks of purpose, of guidance, of gratitude, of something beyond and bigger than America without attaching it to a specific religious confession or church or idea. It is a very generalized view. No doubt the story of Thanksgiving and the meaning of the holiday in our American identity will continue to change as we move forward. As they say, history only matters in the context of the present. Many thanks again to Dr. Mark Valeri, an American religious historian at the Washington University in St. Louis John C. Danforth Center for Religion and Politics. If you're interested in reading more of his research, check out his book, Heavenly Merchandise, How Religion Shaped Commerce in Puritan America. And thanks to all of you too for tuning in. If you like what you've heard today, subscribe to Hold That Thought on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. And I'm wishing you all a very happy Thanksgiving.